This episode of To The Point is sponsored by Tarsus. Tarsus Pharmaceuticals applies proven science and new technology to revolutionize treatment for patients, starting with eye care. Tarsus is advancing its pipeline to address several diseases with high unmet need across a range of therapeutic categories, including eye care, dermatology, and infectious disease prevention. Tarsus is proud to announce that Xdemvi Lotolaner Ophthalmic Solution 0.25% is now available to prescribe. Welcome to Pupil Pod, where we use clinical cases to guide discussions on board review topics. I'm your host, Silla Ball, and my guest today is Dr. Ike Ahmed. Dr. Ahmed is joining us today for part two of our series on glaucoma treatment. So if you haven't already, definitely check out part one, where we discuss glaucoma surgery in more detail. Dr. Ahmed, thank you again for joining me today. Silla, good to be back here. Looking forward to the next uh, case here. So this is a case of a 57-year-old man with pseudo-exfoliation glaucoma who presents to your office for a second opinion. On presentation, his IOP is 25 in the right eye and 24 in the left eye. He heard that doctors are treating glaucoma with lasers instead of eye drops and would like to hear more about these therapies. Dr. Ahmed, which types of glaucoma are most appropriate for laser trabeculoplasty? Well, Sila, this is a really hot topic these days because, you know, especially with the publication of the SLT Light Study, which is a well-funded, well-designed study, I mean, the evidence that's leaning toward using laser trabeculoplasty, specifically SLT in that study, is first line, has really come to fore. And so many of us have always been thinking about a first line. You know, I think now the day has come where the benefits outweigh the risks and the benefits of long-term control and compliance are clear. Now, there are typical glaucomas that we think about, laser trabeculoplasty, and those, of course, include primary open glaucoma. Pigmentary glaucoma has a reasonable response. So exfoliation actually also responds fairly well, although sometimes the duration may be a little less uh, long. Uh, we've also had good experience in steroid glaucoma. For example, patients who've had intravitreal kenalog, and, and that can often buy us some time in those cases as well. So really, uh, those are probably some of the more classical indications. Now, there are certain indications where uh, trabeculoplasty would not be a good uh, choice for. And that would include uh, patients who have, of course, angle closure, you know, sneakle closure, PAS in the eye as well. Patients who have a uveitic glaucoma that maybe is, is active. Although I will say for patients who have a quiet, who's, who are quiet, maybe have a steroid response, it's, a, it's worth trying. Neovascular glaucoma, proliferative conditions like ice syndrome would also be a contraindication uh, in anything that's causing a pretrabecular metric obstruction. Um, you know, you know, developmental and juvenile glaucoma is a little controversial. You know, classically, we would say that the response isn't as good, although I think considering the safety of trabeculoplasty, it, it often is a consideration uh, to treat. And, and one last thing, maybe we'll talk about it during complications. With pigment glaucoma, we've got to be a little bit careful not to do uh, too heavy a treatment because that, that patient may be at risk for uh, IOP spikes. And how much IOP lowering can we expect in patients undergoing a trabeculoplasty? So, you know, some of the uh, work done on uh, primary therapy have shown up to a 30% drop in pressure. Now, if you're using it more as second, third, or, or fourth line even, then, of course, patients are on drops already likely, and the pressure is maybe a little lower than 
in primary uh, purposes. And in those cases, we typically expect a 20, 25% reduction. I should also add that not everyone responds to, uh, to um, tuberculoplasty. And so, you know, often, often uh, we see a response rate from 70 to 80%, especially when it's not used first line. This is going to sound like a silly question, but really, how does trabeculoplasty work? It's not a silly question. In fact, my answer is going to be even more basic because we don't know the answer really. But some of the mechanisms that we we consider, especially back from the uh, ALT work and SLT work, uh, you know, initially, initially, of course, the first thought was we we're poking holes in the TM, and that's causing openings to basically allow it to drain. Well, that's not what happens, of course. In ALT, certainly which typically is using either photocoagulation historically with argon and nowadays using a 532 typically. Um, this results in some thermal uh, trauma to the TM and causes a contraction uh, of the TM uh, beams. And therefore, we have stretch, stretch and widening of the spaces in between those laser applications. And this is felt to perhaps increase outflow. However, you know, now that we see more work with SLT and even micropulsing, we see that this is probably more of a of a chemical or biological or or, or an inflammatory low-grade inflammatory mechanism that may be also present for ALT. And SLT uses a Q-switched uh, frequency doubled YAG laser. Um, this is selectively targeted toward pigment in the uh, melanosomes of the trabecular meshwork. And this results in a, in a subtle stimulation of cytokines. And this stimulates macrophages to basically start Active, be activating and gobble up some of the extracellular matrix, which reduces the resistance in the trabecular meshwork. It also may cause some turnover uh, in a biological fashion to the trabecular cells. And so those, that's the inflammatory mechanism, the biological mechanism uh, that uh, we typically see. So I think there's probably a combination of, of a few, but, but with SLT, we don't typically see that kind of contraction and physical changes. And I think the chemical and the biological um, effects are, are likely more uh, of an impact, which are essentially mediated through MMPs, matrix metalloproteinases. It's so incredible in ophthalmology what we can do with lasers and how our body responds to those lasers. What are some of the complications of trabeculoplasty? You know, fortunately, they're not common, but some of the early ones we think about, of course, are like IOP spikes and inflammation. Uh, you know, spikes happen more commonly, as I mentioned earlier, with people with more pigment. So I recommend doing uh, a, a shorter treatment. I should mention actually that, you know, uh, people do go back and forth between 180 degrees versus 360. Uh, I'm more of a 360 degree treatment with SLT. That's my go-to. Although people with, with, with more pigment, I typically reserve uh, more of a 180 degree treatment with lower energy and less shots. But IOP spikes can happen, you know, up to 20% in patients uh, with open glaucoma. Um, inflammation is usually, uh, you know, limited and we don't typically even treat patients with steroids. In fact, some people argue and some evidence states that steroids themselves may reduce the effectiveness of laser trabeculoplasty considering the mechanism itself may be inflammatory. So we typically use non-steroidals or no medications in that. Um, you know, and then, and then I, I think, you know, the other thing we think about long-term is sometimes we get a bit of PAS formation that can form where the applications were made. Less so with some of the newer uh, trabeculoplasty techniques, but that's something we sometimes see uh, long-term postoperatively. So fortunately, it's pretty rare. And because of the IOP spike issue, there are certain patients we like to check their pressure at one hour. And those are patients with more advanced disease, patients with more medic medicated, and patients with more pigment are higher uh, risk of IOP spikes. And so we check them back at an hour. And if we need to, we add medications. We typically prophylax with um, alpha agonists, I should say, before treating. That helps to blunt those IOP spikes. 
And at what point do you expect to see results? So, yeah, it's a good question. I mean, sometimes we see the results quite, quite, quite soon. But considering the mechanism of action, it can take up to four to six weeks and rarely can take sometimes three months. So I typically don't write off a trabeculoplasty until we've waited three months. Now, the response rate for trabeculoplasty isn't necessarily 100%. Uh, primary treatment, again, like I said, is a higher response rate. But you can expect most patients, 80 plus percent of patients, will respond with some pressure drop. Uh, and this typically will last more than a year, uh, up to two years. But the success rate does drop uh, sequentially over, over the period of time and follow-up. If you're doing primary therapy, you can expect three-quarters of patients will be successful at three years, while secondary or tertiary treatments can basically be about 50% at three to five years. Great. So since we're on the topic of lasers, could you tell us a little bit more about when you would consider using cyclodestruction? Yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of evolving. Um, you know, we typically reserve these in patients who are not good surgical candidates. Maybe they've had multiple previous surgeries and they don't do well with con surgery. Patients who can't go to the OR, you know, because of uh, other medical reasons. And, and patients who have pain and uh, have a painful blind eye with high pressures. And so those are typically the ones that we, we look to. Um, there are folks that are using it earlier, and I should differentiate, for example, transcleral. Uh, from endoscopic, maybe we'll talk about that. But in general, the classical transcleral uh, applications are what I mentioned earlier as far as indications. Yeah, so that that was actually my next question is, what are the types of cyclodestruction that we still use in practice today? So I would, I would divide them up in three ways. Uh, one is the classical transcleral, uh, where basically we're using, uh, you know, continuous wave, uh, you know, laser, typically uh, 8, 10 nanometer laser, diode laser, to literally heat and destroy the cellular body tissue. That's the classical scenario we spoke about earlier uh, in those indications, and that's typically a later term, uh, you know, uh, procedure we use and in, in maybe that eyes are not seeing well and, and have poor surgical outcomes otherwise. Uh, we've, seen a, we've seen the innovation of micropulse laser, and that results, and that basically applies laser in small packages, which are less thermal destructive. Uh, some have used them earlier for that reason. I think we're still evolving in, in where that fits, but Certainly, they seem to be seems to be a safer use of, of cycloablative procedures, but we're still evolving where it fits. And then the third category is endoscopic uh, cyclophotocoagulation, which has commonly been used with cataract surgery because of the direct and titratable treatment of the ciliary processes. The response is not typically as strong, but the risks aren't as great either. Uh, and now we see people often combining ECP or endoscopic cyclophotocoagulation with MIGS as well. So I will say that cycloablation is still kind of all over the place. There's a classical indication, but now with micropulse and endoscopic laser, people are using them earlier and often even combined with uh, with cataract surgery. But it is one of the it is certainly um, treating uh, glaucoma in a very different way than their surgical procedures. Yeah, it's incredible going through these outlines. I don't think I realized how many different types of glaucoma treatment there are and how many different combinations of those subtypes there are. But going back to the cyclodestruction, what are some of the complications that you see in these patients? I mean, the biggest thing we worry about, of course, is hypotony. That's what you read about. That's that's what you hear about, of course, with the with the old, you know, cyclocryotherapies. But these are much less common now with the diode lasers that we use, even the transcleral techniques that we use with the continuous wave energy. Um, but these are eyes typically that are higher risk for it, diabetic eyes and eyes that have had multiple surgeries and maybe, you know, juvenile cases that you may sometimes see hypotony. And, and for that reason, we want to be careful and titrate. Inflammation and uveitis and CME, are something we do see with all kinds of uh, endoscopic treatment. We are treating uveal tissue, so 
treating the inflammation is important and uh, and preventing CME with non-steroidals are, are helpful and important in those eyes as well. And ultimately, we worry about, uh, you know, uh, things like tysis if the hypotony is persistent. And that's what, we, that's what we really, really worry about. Rarely do we see hemorrhages and retinal detachments. Uh, and of course, there's, there's pain. I mean, the procedure can be painful and we typically treat patients with that. Uh, probably some of the most devastating things we've seen in the literature has been some things like sympathetic ophthalmia, which is, of course, the fellow eye developing a sympathetic response to cyclotherapy. And that's, that's, that's typically what we saw with, with cryotherapy. With diode laser, it's not something that I really am concerned about, but that's a more of historical uh, context. So, you know, yeah, it's a big gun and it's a bit uh, hard to titrate. Um, but there's a place, I think, when, when, we, when we see this in, in the cases we discussed earlier. And on to our final glaucoma laser, iridotomy. So normally we think of iridotomies as a treatment for pupillary block causing angle closure, but they're also used for things like diagnosing plateau iris syndrome. So Dr. Ahmed, what are some cases of angle closure when you would actually not prefer to use an iridotomy? That's a good question. And that's something actually I, I always t- push to my fellows because we often say, yeah, do a PI. The patient's got angle closure, do a PI. Uh, their pressures are up and they've got grade zero angles. But, you know, there are situations that I'm particularly careful when, number one, we have, you know, a large amount of PAS because the angle is not going to open up and we may overload the eye with inflammation and pigment if there is a small area of open of, of the opening that does open up. So, you know, eyes with, with you know, more than 180 degrees PAS, I'm careful. Uh, certainly if they have 360 degrees PAS, I would not. And I would, that's typically a surgical consideration of going to seek your lysos if FACO if necessary. You know, angle closure from other mechanisms other than primary, uh, you know, pupil block or or the sort, I, I'd be careful of. Uh, things like, for example, neovascular glaucoma, eye syndrome, you know, uh, you know, even uveitic, uh, you know, PAS, I'd be careful and, and would avoid that. Although, of course, in uveitis, sometimes we do do PIs to prevent the posterior stenicia from causing pupil block. But be careful if you have a lot of stenicia in the angle in those cases. Uh, of course, if they have a, have an opacified cornea, there's no view. Um, you know, eyes that um, have a, f- a flat AC where you cannot get any space to do the laser will be in a, will be a contraindication. And uh, you know, I'm always careful for patients who've had a long history of open angle glaucoma, and they present with angle closure or or a grade zero angle because that patient probably has a combined mechanism. And even if you do a PI and open the angle, the PI, the laser itself with inflammation, may provoke the open angle from uh, causing an IFP spike. So I'm careful in those cases if they have a combined mechanism possibility. Thank you. That was a very comprehensive overview of the lasers that we use in glaucoma and the treatment of glaucoma using lasers. So just to summarize, laser trabeculoplasty can achieve a 20 to 25% reduction of IOP in cases of mild to moderate primary open angle glaucoma, pigmentary glaucoma, pseudoexfoliation, and steroid-induced glaucomas. The IOP lowering effect is thought to be due to chemical mediators like we discussed, such as IL-1 and TNF-alpha. This release of chemical mediators is thought to increase flow through the trabecular meshwork, which is really an incredible mechanism for how these lasers work. In eyes with poor vision and refractory or painful glaucoma, cyclodestruction can be used. And as Dr. Ahmed taught us, sometimes we're even using it earlier and earlier. However, complications to be mindful of in these cases include hypotony and thysis. Iridotomies can be used to treat both angle closure from pupillary block and to diagnose plateau iris syndrome, though we need to keep the contraindications in mind. 
So, Dr. Ahmed, before we end the episode, I ask all of my guests, if you could have dinner with one person from any time or place in the history of humanity, who would it be? I want to congratulate you for being a great uh, interview and um, and putting this together. And I think this is going to be such a great uh, resource for for those in training and, and, and likewise as well, those that are in practice. So it's a good question. I mean, I, 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 I love, I love, I love uh, hanging with people. I'll be honest with you, but the person I probably would be most interested would be Muhammad Ali. And the reason why I would pick Muhammad Ali is because I truly admire that man's courage, you know, in a time when, you know, it was easy to fold up or easy to fall in line. I mean, he stood on principle. I mean, when it wasn't popular, he was in the prime of his life. He uh, was, you know, on the verge of, of continuing to be a great champion. And he basically sat out for so many years because he stood for principle uh, against the war. And the curse to do that when the whole world was against you and the, your government was against you and you were, you know, threatened to go to jail and stripped of your titles and, uh, and the racist things that were happening at the time. I mean, to stand up and have that strength of being alone, um, like that, that is admirable, you know. And then to come back and to uh, and to develop such an admiration amongst the world uh, of all walks of life, you know, um, white, black, brown, doesn't matter. I mean, around the world and have that following because of his conviction, um, you know, and his charisma. Uh, I mean, like just he just for me, just embodies uh, a true humanitarian and, and someone to aspire and be inspired. So, yeah, I, I, I would say it would be Muhammad Ali and. And uh, I'm sure it would be a, an enlightening conversation. Yeah, that's a beautiful answer. I think we could all aspire to leave that mark of our uniqueness on this world. So the fact that he was able to be a leader and be so unique and such a great individual, I think, is what is most inspiring. Dr. Ahmed, thank you so much for your answer. Thank you for joining us today. It was really so much fun to record these episodes. Hey, thanks for being here. I'm looking forward to People Pod and and uh, and the music was fantastic. I'm never going to forget. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners. See you next time on the People Pod. Mm-hmm.